For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, good morning. It's uh, <clears throat> 6 o'clock in the morning-ish, um, so I better pray and uh, get to work. Uh, I've got about an hour. I was asked to speak on uh, the emerging church, and so I'm uh, very glad to do that and uh, just pray and get to work. Father God, um, I'm tired. It's early to me, and God, I want to serve these people really well. I want to do a good job for them, and God, since we're talking about things that matter, and uh, churches and people that you love. God, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to anoint and enable me to teach accurately and faithfully and passionately and biblically. And uh, God, we ask that uh, you would keep us from error and also from a critical spirit that would not have a desire to serve in areas where we see an opportunity and a need. And so, God, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. I pray for our time together and my ability to serve well in Jesus' good name. Amen. Um, this will be more of a lecture. I was told it was a class. This is a fairly big class. Um, and uh, I'm going to work a lot from my notes. Um, this, uh, what I'm going to share with you, much of it will be the uh, feature cover story of the Christian Research Journal their next issue, they asked me to write a feature story on the uh, emerging church, and so much of my research is from that, and I'm also working on a forthcoming book um, that'll be out next year with a chapter on the emerging church, so I'm pulling together a lot of research for you today. I'll start by telling you my history. Uh, it was uh, 1989, late 89, late, early 1990 that I became a Christian um, in... Uh, a couple years later, started uh, doing ministry and then ultimately founded Mars Hill Church in the fall of 1996. It was around 97 or so that I got a call and was asked to come and do some uh, speaking at a uh, young leaders event with Leadership Network, an organization that I'm still very close to uh, to this day, consider very good friends. They have helped, loved, and served me very much. They network pastors together. I'm speaking at their forthcoming uh, anniversary celebration next year in Dallas, so we're still on really good terms, and I want to state that up front. But they invited me to come and speak at an event for young leaders, and I had actually never been to a pastor's conference. I didn't know there was such a thing as a pastor's conference, and now I speak at them all the time. Um, and they said, would you like to come? And I said, well, what happens? And they said, well, there's teaching, and you get to meet lots of other young pastors like you. I was a new Christian, new pastor, without having had gone to seminary or Bible college, no denomination, no training. I really didn't know what I was doing, to be honest with you. And I said, that would be great. I'd love to meet some other young pastors. So I went, and I got up and spoke, and I spoke on the shift from modernism to postmodernism. I called it The Flight from God, stole the title from a, a book by a guy named Max Picard, and my minor in college was in philosophy with an emphasis in epistemology. And so I spoke on transition from the modern to the postmodern world. Up until that point, the whole conference was on Gen X, which was just a goofy concept, and uh, people are not easily distinguished by generation. It's not, oh, you were born this day, and you were born this day? Oh, then you're like this. People are far more complicated than their birthday. 
there's a lot more variables that go into a human being than age. And so I, I said, it's not generational, uh, it's bigger than that. There's an epistemological and worldview shift that's going on, and I spoke on that. And uh, that, uh, that went pretty well um, at Mount Hermon. And, uh, and then pretty soon, uh, this little team was formed by Leadership Network, because there was great interest around these issues. So the whole issue of postmodernism and epistemological shift, uh, it was 11 years ago I gave my le first lecture on it. So uh, it's interesting that this kind of very old, very dated conversation now has become sort of a, a national, if not an international, phenomenon. Um, a team was formed then. It included uh, a guy named Chris C., a Baptist pastor and church planner. Uh, it also um, included some other guys. And uh, pretty soon, uh, Leadership Network hired a guy named Doug Paget to come in and direct our group. Shortly thereafter, there were other people kind of on the fringe, kind of involved, like uh, Dan Kimball uh, was involved as well. And uh, brought in were uh, Tony Jones and Brian McLaren. Those were two of the first guys that Doug chose to join the team. It was shortly after that that I left the team. Um, and I did so for a couple of reasons, and I'll, be, I'll try to be real honest about this. Um, one, I wasn't ready to be flying around the country telling everyone how to do church. My church was like 80 indie rockers committed to anarchy. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wasn't ready to go tell people how to do anything. Our, our church wasn't that impressive, but because I was young and could speak and understood philosophy, you know, I had an opportunity, but I knew I just didn't I didn't have the right to speak. Additionally, I didn't have the maturity or humility to speak. And I'm not saying I'm incredibly humble today and go on and tell you stories about my humility to prove it. Um, <laughs> but I would get angry and frustrated being on the road. I'm meeting Christians from different denominations and traditions, and I, I didn't really know Christians. I'd, I'd only been to one church in my whole life. I'd never been a member of a church. And this isn't to justify my sin, but I get angry and cuss people out and just get rude and mean and nasty. Um, and I didn't serve Christ well, and my attitude was, quite frankly, not good. And so I didn't have the kind of maturity or disposition to be flying around serving the greater church. Um, in addition, where I felt they were going theologically really troubled me. That's when we started having conversations about open theism and homosexuality and the authority and perfection of the Bible and exclusivity of Jesus for salvation and literal hell. These were conversations that started happening among a few leaders in the late 90s. And I was a, I was a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. I didn't even know there was an option. <laughs> I didn't know. You know, people, we start talking, do you think God knows the future? I'm like, yeah. He, keep, yeah. he, he, keeps, he keeps talking about it. You know, I, It just, and so I just get angry and I just, you know, so my response then wasn't, you know, wasn't good. And it just really, you know, homosexual, I'm like, seriously? We have gay Christian, what? 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 We have water that's not wet? Like, what? You know, like, <laughs> there is such a thing as a gay Christian? Like, I don't get it. I just didn't understand. Um, so I decided to go home, focus on Mars Hill Church. Those guys formed together. They went from the Young Leaders Network to something called the Terra Nova Project, morphed into something called the Emergent Village. I know a lot of these guys, some of them real well. Some of them just met briefly. I haven't seen Tony Jones in years, but I, I've met him. He's the director of the Emergent Village. Um, 
Brian McLaren I did get a little bit of time with and have been to his church and his house. And this was many years ago. He was in my house maybe five years ago. Um, and I just saw him briefly in San Diego a while back. Um, I do know these guys. Dan Campbell I saw a couple months ago. Um, and uh, the only guy I'll talk about today that I don't know personally is Rob Bell. I've never met him, um, so I don't know him personally. But I would say this up front. I'm no longer angry. I'm not mad. I'm really concerned. My heart really is grieved, to be honest with you, with some things that I'm hearing. And uh, personally, these are all guys that I've met. And honestly, they've been very nice to me. I, I don't know of any infidelity with their wife. I don't know of any you know, inappropriate use of money. I, I see these guys as being genuine and sincere. Uh, they have been kind to me. Uh, probably they would say they've been kinder to me than I have been to them, and there may be a bit of truth to that. Um, so I hope my tone is reflective of love and humility. Um, so it's not personal, and it's not a personal character attack, but there are some things to me that are concerning. I'll, I'll start with things that I, I believe we hold in common. One, I do believe there has been a transition in culture. I do believe that Christendom has really run its course, and there are, as I said last night, remnants of Christendom, but for the most part, we're just in a pluralistic world. I don't really like the word postmodernism. I think we actually you know, probably should drop it, but I don't know if we have anything better. So um, all we could say is that the world has changed, and the way people used to think is not the way they do think, and the ministry methods that did work aren't working, which leads me to my next point, that since the world and the culture has shifted, that we need to assume a missionary posture. We need to look at our culture like missionaries, trying to figure out how do we contextualize the gospel here. So I agree with, with that. The world has changed, and we need to make adaptations. The questions are, is that adaptation of our core beliefs and our practices, or just our practices? That's really where the debate comes in. Um, what I would say when it comes to the emerging church, I'm going to share with you that I think there are four lanes. If you look at it like a highway, uh, the emerging church has four lanes. One of those lanes is emergent. Uh, Dan Kimball was one of the first guys to distinguish these two. Emergent is a 501c3. It's a not-for-profit organization with Brian McLaren in sort of visible leadership. The, uh, Doug Paget is well in visible leadership, and Tony Jones is the director of... Um, the emergent village. And so there's four lanes, one of which is emergent village. And I think there's a difference between the emerging church and the emergent church. And some of you would say, well, that's really bad marketing. And I would say, yes, hence all the confusion. It's like, we're Baptist and we're Baptists. Don't confuse us. It's like, well, it's kind of hard not to, you know, like we're emerging, we're emergent. Don't confuse us. Well, it's pretty easy to um, I'll talk about three of the lanes that I do not have big issues and trouble with, and then I'll spend the preponderance of my time on the one I do have problems with. First lane on this highway as we move sort of from post-Christendom to postmodern world, if we use that title, is emerging evangelicals. Emerging evangelicals tend to hold evangelical distinctives, the Bible, hell, the Trinity, substitutionary atonement, heterosexuality is a good idea, those kind of things. And they're not really trying to change the essential core doctrines of Christian belief, but they're trying to redo church in a cooler, younger way, change the music, change the service time, change the style, let people text message in, answer questions, just try to, to update um, methods, not beliefs, but methods. Um, they're often criticized for just trying to do cool church. You'll hear guys doing church within a church, which is our church isn't cool, we're not going to go plant a church, but we'll have a cool church service within our not-so-cool church. <laughs> Be very careful of those, they end up being church splits, 
right? It's like kids who won't leave your house if you're their parent, um, but they keep criticizing you and eating all your food. <laughs> They're in your basement blogging nasty things about you, you know, kind of like that. Um, guys that would fit sort of in this uh, would be uh, Dan Kimball. Uh, Dan Kimball's not a bad guy. He's actually a personal friend. He believes in hell. He believes in the Bible. He believes in the cross. Uh, they would disagree. Some people would as to whether or not women should be elders and charismatic gifts and eschatology. But on the primary issues, the, the, uh, even, the emerging evangelicals, I think, are you know, solid. Dan's a, a good guy. loves Jesus. He has... Uh, he's not teaching with the emergent village guys much anymore, and he's a gracious and humble man, so he doesn't go into attack mode. But, you know, he's one of those guys who loves Jesus and believes the Bible and is pastoring his church and writing books. Um, I wouldn't say I agree with everything that everybody says, but he's a good guy. And also this would include guys like Donald Miller, and uh, his book, Blue Like Jazz, is kind of a best-selling deconstruction of modern Christianity. Uh, John Burke uh, in Texas is a guy who, you know, no perfect people allowed, and he loves Jesus and believes the Bible. I know, I know these three guys actually pretty good, and they're really good guys. They love Jesus. They believe the Bible. I'm, I don't have huge concerns about, you know, false teaching or major heresy uh, with these guys. There's other guys kind of in here too, like an Erwin McManus, um, guys like that, okay? Lane one, what I'd say is, you know, they love Jesus. There's not a huge concern. Lane two, house church evangelicals, they're evangelical in theology, and they're not trying to just do cool new form of church or worship. What they're trying to do is find a whole new way to do church, generally speaking, house church movement. Um, sort of influencers for these thinkers are Australian missiologist Frost and Hirsch, The Shaping of Things to Come, and some of their other works. Um, Neil Cole is in his organic church concept is pretty big among house church evangelicals and uh, sadly uh, so is George Barna um, I know that a lot of you are house church guys uh, I'm, I'm not I'll just come out and say it I, I'm big on corporate worship and corporate preaching and we do basically house churches where I preach and then they meet in large groups in homes to do shepherding and care and evangelism and prayer based upon the sermon, so the sermon sort of leads in the, in the house churches that we have, we call them community groups, follow. I don't have a big, I'm not a huge fan of the house church movement, but especially when it starts to smell like George Barna's work, I have grave concerns. Uh, his book, Pagan Christianity and stuff like that, is the most bizarre rewriting of church history. It says that preaching and meeting in buildings on certain days with visible leaders comes from paganism. And it comes from the synagogue. He forgets like there were Jews and stuff. You know, we kind of worship one. I mean, you got to remember these things. You know, I mean, if you are a house church guy, don't become a self-righteous, judgmental, pharisaical, new legalist, Barna-type house church guy. Okay? If you have that book, trade it in for a devotional book on humility be my recommendation. Um, you know, I would say as well, uh, the criticism for those is this tends to be the gathering of disgruntled Christians who define themselves by what they're against. Emerging evangelicals, one lane. House church evangelicals, no problem with house church evangelicals as long as it's not, we're the only New Testament biblical church. If I hear that again, I will kill someone. <laughs> 
Number three. Uh, this is my team, so this is the right one. Um, <laughs> this is the lane I drive in. The emerging reformers. Right? We love the fact that the church is to be semper, semper reformanda, always reforming. Uh, we tend to be more reformed theologically. Um, not in the modernistic sense, but in the you know, sort of classic Protestant sense of the word. Uh, we also tend to be charismatic. Charismatic Calvinists. I know, that's like, what? That, what? Charismatic isn't... That's like a really tall jockey. Like, they have those? Like, you know, that's very <laughs> charismatic Calvinist. Uh, I, am, I am reformed. Uh, Christianity Today, the uh, cover story in September 2006, said the two hottest theologies in America are emerging reformed and emergent. And I think they're right. Um, we look to men like Tim Keller and John Piper and Wayne Grudem for theological influence. Um, Matt Chandler's a dear friend. Darren Patrick's a dear friend. These are kind of some of the young pastors that guys look to and listen to on iTunes and stuff like that. Some would critique us and say, you know, you guys are fundamentalists. You don't have women elders. You believe in inerrancy. Um, so that would be the criticism against us. You're not really emerging or emergent. Um, you're just trying to do cool Calvinism. Uh, <laughs> Nah, it's a little bigger than that. But also, too, uh, we're really big on church planting. Really, really big on church planting. The Young Charismatic Reform guys with Sovereign Grace Network, C.J. Mahaney, Desiring God with John Piper, Acts 29 with me, we're really big on church planting. Tim Keller and the Redeemer Network in New York would fit in this. That's our team. We love John Stott and Billy Graham and J.I. Packer and Francis Schaeffer, the first generation of evangelical leaders 50 years ago who were all reformed, basically, in their soteriology. That's our team. Okay, I, I don't have any problem really with those three lanes, emerging evangelicals, house church evangelicals, and also reformed evangelicals. We've got a little more theological distinctives on the reform side than some of the other evangelicals. Those three lanes, I would say, let's, let's just say praise God, you know, reach people, love Jesus, teach the Bible. There's enough in common to hold us together. The fourth lane is where I'll spend the preponderance of my time, and it is... My point of concern, the fourth lane I would say is emergent liberals, and I do think it is the new liberalism. I think that the old liberalism, especially the one that J. Gresham Machen argues against in Christianity is liberalism. Christianity and liberalism, it accommodated modernism, and the new liberalism accommodates postmodernism. Um, Emergent Village is really the organization that's become the lightning rod for controversy and the gathering point for these people. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this, when it comes to issues such as the exclusivity of the gospel, the identity of Jesus Christ as both fully human and fully divine, the authoritative character of scripture as written revelation, and the clear teachings of scripture concerning issues such as homosexuality, this movement, speaking of the emergent liberal lane, simply refuses to answer the questions. This will be a common issue. Questions get asked and they say, well, let's dialogue, let's talk. You can't get an answer. And if you say, well, you're evasive and you're not being forthright, they will say, oh, that's because we're into dialogue, not monologue. We're into conversation, not declaration. We're into community and we're into mutual learning and experience and you're not being humble, you're being very modern. Modern means 
answer the question. Right? We're supposed to give an answer. Jesus said, if it's yes, say yes. If it's no, say no. He didn't say, um, argue epistemology when answer, answer, asked a question. Muller gets it right. They just don't like to answer the questions. And what that allows them to do then is say, oh, you misunderstood. You misunderstood. You, you misunderstood us. So it's always back on you. You're guilty of not getting it right. Call this blame shifting in counseling, by the way. <laughs> Happened in Genesis 3, right? God comes. What have you guys been doing? Um, talk to them. Um, <laughs> Moeller further asserts that the emergent movement represents a significant challenge to biblical Christianity. Major leaders, Brian McLaren, most visible, most well-known. Uh, master's degree in English from the University of Maryland, that is not uh, unimportant. Uh, this whole issue of text and hermeneutic and uh, epistemology, you know, view of truth, um, and also how to write and speak in a way that is unclear and evasive, he's good at it. And I love him. And he's a very nice guy personally. And he's never son said or done anything to me to cause me not to love him. And I would say, be, just hear my heart on this. I'm concerned and I'm grieved because I really do like this guy. But I am concerned. A Time Magazine called him one of the 25 most influential evangelicals. Phyllis uh, Tickle, she is a pretty well-known writer, declared him to be the Martin Luther of the 21st century. D.A. Carson, my dear friend, and a bright guy, He's going to be lecturing uh, when I am finished, and you will be blessed if you enjoy his instruction. He's written more than 45 books. He is brilliant and humble. He's at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Here's what he says. It is not because McLaren does, uh, he, McLaren, doesn't want to give any answer at all. Why is it so evasive? It's because he wants to give answers that are fuzzy. That is his intent. It's not because he is a clever diplomat who is trying to avoid the toughest questions by using ambiguous answers of a diplomatic cast, but everybody who understands the language knows what he really means. He really does want all of these edges taken away. He wants to avoid what he perceives to be the angularity of confessional truth, and he's very good at dancing around. At the end of the day, goes on to say he seems to avoid, quote, some of the angularities of the Bible itself. Brian is so careful to dance around the edges that he's shrewd enough not to come into the position where he simply says, I know that's what the Bible says and I disbelieve it. At some point when a person does that, then categories like heresy are appropriate categories. Carson goes on to say, and I'll read a lot and I apologize um, for that, but McLaren quote, uh, gives, quote, the impression, Carson says, that they're either not important or he wants to reinterpret them. Carson goes on to say, do I think he's saying some dangerous things? Dangerous in the sense that he's diverting people from things that are central to the gospel, that are non-negotiable as part of the gospel. He's diverting people away from those things? Yes. In that sense, Carson says, I think he's dangerous. Now, a lot of the uh, <clears throat> emergent guys and stuff would say, oh, Carson's old and modern and 
Carson's preached, I think, pretty much in almost every country of the earth. He's bilingual in multiple languages. <clears throat> he is not a modern. He is not necessarily even purely an American. I mean, he is a man with a global pedigree and perspective. And he's bright. And he loves Jesus. And he's helpful. Um, Here's one example. Time Magazine asked Brian, what's your position on homosexuality? He said, quote, you know, the thing that breaks my heart is that there's no way I can answer it without hurting someone on either side. End quote. Okay. The problem is when God says something and you don't say it, you hurt God. And in this whole effort to be tolerant and diverse and loving and welcoming and accepting and affirming, we need to include God in that aspiration. We need to make sure that if God says something, we honor that. It doesn't answer the gay question. won't answer the gay question. I couldn't find it online anymore. They took it down. He did do baptisms of uh, Christians at a gay church that had two gay pastors on the front page together as a couple telling their gay story. And if you go in, it had the video and the photos of Brian and the gay pastors baptizing the converts, if that's any indication. Converts in quotes. In Leadership Journal, he wrote this, I hesitate in answering the homosexual question, not because I'm a cowardly flip-flopper who wants to tickle ears, but because I'm a pastor and pastors have learned from Jesus that there is more to answering a question than being right or even honest. We must also be pastoral. Goes on to say, frankly, many of us do not know what we should think about homosexuality. We don't know. Goes on to say, we've heard all the sides, but no position has yet won our confidence. Friends, might I submit to you, there are two positions. If a guy comes up to me and says, can I have sex with that guy? There are two positions, yes and no. At the end of the day, it's really not that complicated. Okay, pastoral, I'm I'm a pastor. Pastoring homosexuals, one of my elders is, one of our pastors is a converted homosexual seen his whole life change. Yeah, I I understand. We have guys who met Jesus and they struggle with same-sex attraction like other guys struggle with other kinds of temptation. I get it. You know, we're in one of the least church, most gay cities in America. Brian's an older man, been in pastoral ministry for a long time, and if what he's saying is, at this point, I still don't know what to tell people about homosexuality, it's like, well, what have you been doing for so many years of pastoral ministry? People come in and they ask. I mean, you're in leadership. This question comes up. Again, we don't need to pick on homosexuals. All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is wrong. Fornication, bisexuality, bestiality, homosexuality, pornography. You know, the marriage bed is to be pure and undefiled and reserved for heterosexual married couples. That's God's intent. This will be one of those issues that's like a border between nations. Where you land on it will determine what country you're in. Some say, well, it's just one issue. Well, it's one big issue because answering that issue really defines your view of Bible, 
defines your view of sin, repentance, very big gospel issues. Again, I was hanging out with J.I. Packer, and he said that in his Anglican communion in Canada that uh, those who have uh, permitted homosexuality have denied the gospel because they've denied one of the essential tenets of the gospel, which is repentance. Um, I do believe we do not need to be mean and cruel to those who are homosexual or involved in any other kind of sexual sin. But I do believe if they ask in a pastoral situation, should I be an active homosexual? The answer should be, God did not create you for that and that is not his intent for you. So we would encourage you to repent and not participate in that kind of activity. Uh, speaking of his theological influences, McLaren says this, quote, I really like Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. This is a while back. He says they have a book coming out called The Last Week that follows what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It's a really great book. Evangelicals tend to think they're the only uh, people who take the Bible seriously. I'm so impressed with how seriously these guys take the Gospel of Mark, really the last week of Jesus. It's really stunning. I'll tell you this, uh, Marcus Borg is a panentheist. He doesn't believe in the Trinitarian God of the Bible. John Dominic Crossan is co-chair of the Jesus Seminar. He told Time Magazine that after the crucifixion, Jesus didn't rise. Uh, his body was taken down and maybe thrown in a ditch and eaten by dogs. I wouldn't say I'm really impressed with these guys' New Testament scholarship. Here's what uh, he actually says. Jesus, uh, this is what... Uh, Crossan told uh, Time Magazine, Jesus' corpse went the way of all the abandoned criminal bodies. It was probably barely covered with dirt, vulnerable to the wild dogs, roamed the wasteland to the execution grounds. The subsequent tales of Jesus' entombment and resurrection, he says, were merely the result of quote-unquote wishful thinking. No resurrection. Brian goes on to endorse certain books that I find really concerning. One of those is uh, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. He actually footnotes it in Generous Orthodoxy and recommends it. It's put out, sadly, by InterVarsity Press, the same group that put out John Stott's The Cross of Christ, which is one of the most wonderful books ever written. It's a wonderful book. And Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, um, it, is, uh, it is a really horrendous book. Um, it's written by two guys. I call them Hymenaeus and Alexander. And what they do... <laughs> What they do in this book is they say that all of our views of atonement and the cross are taken from paganism and that Christianity is essentially pagan in its orientation. Therefore, to be faithful to the Bible, we should be pagan. We should import Marxism and feminism and radical green environmentalism into our concepts of Jesus so that we have a good pagan Jesus. Syncretism. He also... Uh, endorses Steve Chalky's book, The, La the Lost Message of Jesus. Right? When you buy the book, see the endorsement on the back. Here's what he says, Brian does. Steve Chalky's new book could help save Jesus from Christianity. That's a strange way of putting it, I know. Not that the real Jesus needs saving, but when one contrasts the vital portrait of Jesus painted by Steve with a tense caricature drawn so often by modern Christianity, one can't help but feeling the Jesus of modern Christianity is in trouble. The Jesus introduced by Steve in these pages sounds like someone who can save us from our trouble. Steve Chalky is Brian McLaren's equivalent in England. 
led to a great rift and a Bible conference and many organizations there. I was in London last week. Steve Chalky is the British equivalent of Brian McLaren. The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is incredibly important. My friends at Crossware Publishing, in my opinion, some of the best works on this issue. I've got a book coming out in October on the atonement called Death by Love. It's a series of pastoral reflections where I take 12 people's stories and I write them a pastoral letter showing how an aspect of the atonement applies to their life. So the sex offender who molested a child gets the chapter on propitiation. A dear friend of mine who was brutally raped gets the chapter on expiation. A gal I know who lost her virginity at age six and has been tormented by demons gets the Christus Victor chapter. My attempt is to show how the gospel and the cross is really helpful. And if we deny it, we lose our ability to really care for people. Um, Steve Chalky calls a, the concept of penal substitutionary atonement, quote, divine child abuse. Penal substitutionary atonement is this. Christ died in our place for our sins according to the scriptures. You may have heard that. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's called the gospel. Okay? Christ didn't just die as our example. He died as our substitute. Penal, there was a penalty for sin. That is death. Substitute, Jesus paid that penalty so that we don't have to atonement so that our sin can be taken away and we can be at one reconciled back to God in Christ. D.A. Carson says, quote, I have to say kindly but as forcefully as I can, if words mean anything, both McLaren and Chalky have largely abandoned the gospel. He also endorses Alan Jones' book, Reimagining Christianity saying, quote, Alan Jones is a pioneer in reimagining a Christian faith that emerges from authentic spirituality. His work stimulates and encourages me deeply. Jones says that Jesus should be reimagined and that the cross should be reimagined. He goes on to say that the cross is a vile doctrine. Here's what he says in the book. The church's fixation on the death of Jesus as the universal saving act must end. I'm going to read a lot of quotes because people are like, oh, you misunderstood. Nice people. You don't understand. You've got it all wrong. You're just a watchdog. You're a discernment ministry guy. You're a fundamentalist. No, really. Just read the quotes. And the place of the cross must be reimagined in Christian faith. Why? Because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it. He goes on to say, Jones does, the other threat of just criticism addresses the suggestion Implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine. Brian McLaren also wrote the forward to Spencer Burke's book, A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. I, I endorse a lot of books. I know sometimes you can make a mistake and maybe not read the whole thing or miss something. But when heretic is in the title, you should catch it. McLaren says, it is easy for inquisition launchers to go on fault-finding missions. What's more challenging in regarding this book, much more worthwhile, is to instead go on truth-finding mission. And yes, even in a book with heretic in the title, I believe any honest reader can find much worth seeking. In the book, Burke says that there is no hell. 
He says, quote, the God I connect with does not assign humans to hell. I pray for him. I hope he connects with the real God. He says also, when I say I am a universalist, that everyone goes to heaven, no one goes to hell, what I really mean is that I don't believe you have to convert to any particular religion to find God. Goes on to say, although the link between grace and sin has driven Christianity for centuries, it just doesn't resonate in our culture anymore. Boy, it sure does. I mean, if you ask the average American, do you think the war in Iraq is a sin? You'll realize it resonates. They believe in sin. Maybe not personal sin, but they believe in institutional sin to be sure. He says it repulses rather than attracts. People are becoming much less inclined to acknowledge themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. Goes on to say, for anyone and everyone, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, whatever, what counts is not a belief system, but a holistic approach to following what you feel, experience, discover, and believe. I would say that lacks discernment and opens Pandora's box of demonic deception. Finally, he admits, quote, what's more, I'm not sure I believe in God exclusively as a person anymore either. I now incorporate a panentheist view. Scott McKnight, professor of religious studies at North Park University, has been a big fan of Emergeny. His writings are starting to go the other direction, but uh, he is a, a fan and a friend and not a foe. He says, quote, is Spencer a heretic? He says he is, and I see no reason to think he believes in the Trinity from reading this book. That's what heresy means to me. Another issue that is not often talked about by Brian or answered is the doctrine of hell. Is there conscious eternal torment? Does anyone go to hell? He says, try, he says he is, quote, trying to find an alternative to both traditional universalism and narrow exclusivist understanding of hell that unless you explicitly accept and follow Jesus, you are excluded from eternal life with God and destined for hell. Goes on to say, quote, we should consider the possibility that many and perhaps even all of Jesus' hellfire or end of the universe statements refer not to post-mortem judgment, but to the very historic consequences of rejecting his kingdom message of reconciliation and peacemaking. major concerns. The cross, hell, sexuality, gender, identity. Doug Padgett is on the board with Brian McLaren. They are friends. I've known Doug for some years. We hadn't been in contact for a while. We did a discussion um, with uh, some others in a book called Listening to the Beliefs of Emerging Churches. I don't think it's a great book. I don't think it was well edited. Um, but it does have some insightful information. In that book, Dan Kimball, John Burke, myself, Doug Padgett, and Karen Ward each wrote a chapter hitting big issues of theology and then responding to one another. Pastor Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis. Uh, in the book that I wrote with him and the others, listening to the least of emerging churches, he defends Pelagius. Just so you know, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic of the Council of Carthage in 418 for denying innate human sin nature just denies it um, goes on as well in that book that I wrote 
I'll hit this quote too. Um, in his book, um, it's a newer book, A Christianity Worth Believing, Doug says this, we have an instinctive belief that there is a goodness in all human beings that needs to be protected and preserved. He's trying to deny the reform doctrine of uh, total depravity where sin has affected all of our personhood. He goes on to call the Westminster Confession of Faith, quote, extreme theology. He says, it's pretty clear that it's a sorry fate to be human, and as much as we'd like to believe we have moved beyond such extreme theology, this explanation has held so firmly that many churches still use this catechism in their teaching. His point is that he does not believe that we are by nature and choice sinners. Here's where he goes uh, on as well. Um, Speaking of uh, the creation and fall narrative in Genesis, this story never suggests that the sin of Adam and Eve sends them into a state of depravity. I don't know what you do with Romans 5, 12 through 21. Because of one man's sin, the whole race fell. 1 Corinthians 15, that Adam, we die. In Jesus, we live. There is nothing in the story that tells us that God sends them into a state of depravity. There is nothing... Uh, it goes on rather to say, there is nothing in the story that tells us that God steps over to the other side of some great chasm once Eve bites down on that fruit. Certainly there is sin, but the result of sin is a change of our relationship with God and with others, not a change in the basic makeup of humanity, what the Bible calls sin nature or flesh. The Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses. We are at enmity with God. The creation story tells us that although we are capable of tragic missteps, God's hope and desire is for us to continue to live, continue to rather join into the good things God is doing in the world. We are still capable of living as children of God. Just make note of this. This is without Jesus. Once the story of Adam and Eve is freed from the confines of -of out-of-date theology, it points us to a more accurate view of humanity. We are created in the image of God to be God's partners in the world. I'd say, of course, we agree with that, and that is not possible till we are saved by Jesus, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made new creations in Christ, born again, by the power of the Holy Spirit to participate with Jesus in the service of the world on behalf of the kingdom. He, uh, in the, the book, Listening to the Beliefs of Emerging Churches, he, he argues for pantheism or panentheism. Romans one twenty five says that uh, the classic pagan error is to exchange the truth of God for the lie and to worship and serve created things rather than the creator God, amen. By definition, paganism is confusing creator creation, right? I like to tell our people, taken from this guy, Peter Jones, he's a prof, twoism, that there is creator and creation. Paganism is where they collapse in on one another, and I'll call it oneism, that there is no distinction between creator and creation. This is exactly what the Dalai Lama did on his Seeds of Compassion tour. I saw one of the nightly video uh, newscasts, and it's, he said, we used to believe in a world where there was two, and now we believe in a world where all is one. That's paganism. That's pantheism or panentheism. 
We believe in creator, creation. When you collapse those, you are by definition, Romans 1.25, a pagan. Here's what he says. The idea that there is a necessary distinction of matter from spirit or creation from creator is being reconsidered. I'm not sure by whom. I hope not many. The result of that, according to the remainder of Romans 1, is that you end up submitting to homosexuality. And he does exactly that. We had a debate, discussion, conversation. We don't debate. We have conversations. (laughs) And we were on the stage in Seattle for a book tour, and a host from National Public Radio was there. And I just asked Doug, I got it on tape, I said, Doug, you know, is homosexuality as a, as a lifestyle, not as a temptation. I know people are tempted with all kinds of things. But is homosexual activity incompatible with Christian faith? He said no. No. Gay Christian, what's the big deal? Um, I will leave Doug at that. I will move on to Tony Jones, head of the Emergent Village. I'll deal with him briefly, and then we'll spend a few moments on Rob Bell. Tony Jones is the director of Emergent. I haven't talked to him in some years. Takes a few good shots at me in this book, and I consider that a high honor. (laughs) If the right people criticize you, praise God. He says, the emergent conversation has never been about age, but the emergents do tend to skew younger than the average American churchgoer. This is in his book, The New Christians. I surveyed eight emergent congregations in May 2006, and the average age was 32 and a half, whereas the average age of American church on Sunday is 50. He's talking about going out and looking at emergent churches and communities and groups. So they tend to be young. They tend to be white. They tend to be educated. And as you'll see in a moment, they tend to be out of churches that were very modern and seeker or fundamental. They tend to be angry and reacting against them. He says, this is an important backdrop for understanding emergence. Many of them were nurtured in these seeker-sensitive environments. Some even served on staffs of these churches. But as the complexities of a globalized world have encroached on their psyches, the emergence have pursued a faith that spurns easy answers. You may find this interesting. He says, under Dispatch 17 in his book, The New Christians, emergents start new churches to save their own faith, not necessarily as an outreach strategy. See, the whole reason that many evangelicals are arrested in the emergent conversation is they think, oh, these are what the young guys are doing to reach postmoderns. And he says, no, we're just disgruntled church kids. We don't really reach people. That's the director. to preserve our own faith. You know what we call that? Consumerism, the very thing they're railing against. They left the seeker-sensitive church because it was consumer-based. People came just to get their needs met. So they leave to start new communities where people come to get their needs met. (laughs) It's still not about reaching lost people. It's still about us. It's the same disease with just new symptoms. Same whore, new dress. That isn't going to go well on the internet. 
goes on to say, theology is temporary. Just meditate on that for a while. I thought God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thought your word, O Lord, stands forever. Goes on to say, since our conceptions of God are shaped locally and in conversation, we must hold them humbly. We must carry our theologies, not our methods, our theologies in an open hand, as it were, to assume that our convictions about God are somehow timeless, that our convictions about God are somehow timeless, is the deepest arrogance. And it establishes an imperialistic attitude that has a chilling effect on the honest conversation that's needed for theology to progress. There are certain things that we believe that are timeless. There is one God. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Trinitarian community. That Jesus did live, that he did die, that he did rise. There are things that are timeless. And what they define humility as is we don't know anything. That's not humility. That's heresy. Humility is the ability to believe what you believe and be gracious and loving and kind and patient toward others as God is toward us. The Bible requires humility, but humility is different than heresy. Deal with uh, Rob Bell, lastly. He is, along with Brian McLaren, the, maybe the most prominent one of the most church cities in America in Grand Rapids. His NUMA videos are very popular. The Chicago Sun-Times called him the next Billy Graham. I like Billy Graham. And I'll tell you this, nobody's the next Billy Graham. Billy's Billy. He has had uh, Brian McLaren and Doug Padgett preach at his church, cover his pulpit, the friends. Um, Rob Bell's wife, Kristen, spoke of the influence of Brian McLaren's work, saying, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. Okay, this will be a rebuke to you. There's two ways you can hear that. Ha, 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 that's funny. Oh my gosh, that's sad. You and I, we need to be pastors with pastor's hearts. Okay? I think of my wife, Grace, who gave me my first Bible when I was a 17-year-old kid. And if after knowing me for 20 years and living with me and reading with me and studying with me and praying with me, if she told Christianity today, I used to think I knew what the Bible meant and now I have no idea what it means, I would be sad. I want you to be sad, okay? I rebuke you for your laugh, okay? And it's, I know sometimes I'm funny and quirky, but let me say that unless we approach this issue with humility and compassion and love and empathy and brokenness, then those disgruntled children of evangelicals will simply continue to rail against the church. Yeah, they're just arrogant, self-righteous, they make fun of people, no. Let's keep the issues on the issues and let's maintain a heart of compassion and love for the people. Hey, let's do that.
And I'll tell you this, I've been the worst at this historically, right? I'm great at making fun of people. I'm great at taking shots. I mean, I'm really good at preaching to the choir. But I, I'm really sad. I don't want pastors, wives of large churches telling Christianity today, you know, I've been liberated from knowing what the Bible means. That, that's sad. That's, that, that's really sad. I never met her. I don't know her. But if she is my sister in Christ, as she professes to be, then I want her to read the Bible and not have some sort of modernistic certainty, but I want her to know what it's about with humility and a love for Jesus. And yet I feel, she says, like life is big again, like life used to be black and white, and now it's in color. Uh, she goes on to say that during her and her husband, Rob Bell's thinking on the Bible and Christian doctrine, quote, their lifeboat was a new kind of Christian. Men, just think about this. Christian today comes to interview your wife. She says, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. Man, let that sink in a bit. Goes on in uh, the Velvet Elvis to say that uh, we don't really need things like the virgin conception of Jesus. Maybe it's all a myth taken from paganism. If we lose things like the virgin birth of Jesus, we don't really lose anything. And I would say we lose the Bible's testimony about Jesus. If the Bible's not true about Jesus, we do have problems. His theological influences include these. Bell says, for a mind-blowing introduction to emergence theory and divine creativity, that means we are co-creators with God, by the way, set aside three months and read Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything. McLaren loves this book as well. He says, quote, I am trying with Ken Wilber's help to make it clear that I believe there is something above and beyond the current alternatives of modern fundamentalism, absolutism, and pluralistic relativism. McLaren endorses the book, uh, Brief Theory of Everything and the Marriage of Sense and Soul by Ken Wilber, saying, the way of thinking Wilber promotes and exemplifies what he calls integral thinking and which I call emergent thinking is powerful and important. Peter Jones at Westminster Seminary, a dear friend I've been dialoguing on these issues with. He uh, oversees ministry, Christian witness to a pagan planet. He's dealing with, he's changed the name to Truth Exchange, and he's dealing with paganism all the time. This is his area of specialty, PhD. I emailed him, and he emailed me back. He said, quote, uh, Ken Wilber is the arch-pagan philosopher. He goes on to say in the email he sent me, Wilbur is a practicing uh, Mayan Buddhist, who believes that reality is ultimately a non-dual union of emptiness and form. He speaks of unitary, non-dual, or monistic consciousness, what some call the Dharma of dual enlightenment. He is a promoter of the perennial philosophy, which is a name for the religion of esoteric paganism and the great chain of being. Wilbur promotes yoga, Zen, Kabbalah, and tantric uh, yoga, including uh, Hindu sex te techniques. His think tank, the Integral Institute, includes such luminaries as Deepak Chopra, Michael Murphy of Esalen, and a key figure in the human potential movement, John Kabat-Zinn, Buddhist healer and professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts, and Francisco Varela, a Chilean biologist and Tibetan Buddhist. 
Bell and McLaren would say, this will help you understand how to think, if you read Ken Wilber. In his brief theory of everything, which they both recommend, he says there are nine levels of human evolutionary consciousness. Monotheism, belief in one God, is the fourth of nine levels of evolutionary consciousness that we are evolving out of that kind of thinking into higher levels of consciousness. This is the pagan human potential movement. Okay, and I'm not a conspiracy theory nut, you know. But when there's an evolutionary scale and Christianity is at level four of nine and will evolve beyond it, that's concerning. There is not just an effort like the first three lanes of the emerging church to try and figure out new ways to do church and answer the questions that people are asking in biblical ways. There is the attempt to refashion Christian belief. Rob Bell says it this way, this is not the same old message with new methods. That's what I'm always arguing for. Right? I mean, I've got a book coming out in January, Vintage Church, Timeless, Truths and timely methods. I mean, you know. He says, we're rediscovering Christianity. McLaren says, likewise, I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. This is on the heels of a couple thousand years of church history, the Protestant Reformation. What does it mean to be saved? I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy. Wow. McLaren goes on to say, Jesus did not come to create another exclusive religion. Goes on to say, I don't hope all Jews or Hindus will become members of the Christian religion, but I do hope all who feel so called will become Jewish or Hindu followers of Jesus. Goes on to say, many Hindus are willing to consider Jesus as a legitimate manifestation of the divine, though he's not divine, many, they think. Many Buddhists see Jesus as one of humanity's most enlightened people, but not God. A shared reappraisal of Jesus' message could provide a unique space or common ground for urgently needed religious dialogue. Emergent Village is making the move toward being interfaith dialogue, toward being a a multi-religious spiritual community. And it doesn't seem an exaggeration to say that the future of our planet may depend on such dialogue. This reappraisal of Jesus' message, Jesus' message is God, may be the only project capable of saving a number of religions. So you know, my goal is never to save a lot of religions, but people who are trapped in a lot of religions and need Jesus. How can you be a Christian Buddhist if Buddhists don't believe in God? How can you be a Christian Hindu if Hindus worship multiple gods? He goes on to say what the future might look like. Brian McLaren says, Christians in the emerging culture may look back on our doctrinal structures, including our statements of faith and systematic theologies, as we look back on medieval cathedrals, possessing a real beauty that should be preserved, but now largely vacant, church creeds like the Chalcedonian Creed, or the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> Not inhabited or used much anymore, more tourist attractions than a holy place. 
In the middle of all of this confusion, Brian McLaren encourages us to look to Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz rather than Jesus for insight. Here's what he says. At first glance, Dorothy is all wrong as a model of leadership. She's the wrong gender female, the wrong age young. Rather than being a person with all answers who knows what's up and where to go and what's what, she is herself lost, a seeker, often bewildered and vulnerable. These characteristics would disqualify her from modern leadership, but they serve as her best credentials for postmodern leadership. Doug Paget says, I am a Christian, but I don't believe in Christianity. At least I don't believe in the version of Christianity that have prevailed for the last 1500 years. The ones that were perfectly suitable in their time and place would have little connection with this time and place. I'll close with this. Um, the Dalai Lama had a seeds of compassion to her this last summer. You say, where is all of this going? I'll give you a glimpse. The Dalai Lama had the seeds of compassion to her this last year. And on one occasion, Doug Paget was brought up as part of the religious you know, leaders convocation, different religious leaders from different religions get together, pray together, interfaith dialogue, do conversation together. And on his uh, video blog, he said uh, you know, that he enjoys participating in the kingdom of God wherever he finds it, and it was definitely there. Rob Bell was brought on the stage at one point with the Dalai Lama and referred to him as, quote, his holiness. Okay, let me be fair. I know that sometimes we make mistakes, and I've made a lot of mistakes and probably even made mistakes in this presentation. And maybe all the cameras are on and all the lights are on and everybody else is calling him his holiness and oops, one of that, oh, oh, shouldn't have said that. I understand that. And I, I, when a guy makes a mistake, I don't think we shoot him. Or if a guy makes, his, what I mean is if a guy makes a mistake, we don't shoot him. We give him an opportunity to say, that was wrong. I'm sorry. I messed up. That was a mistake. I repent. And if there's humility and repentance, we say, okay, you know, we all make mistakes and you apologize, and you corrected it, you repented, you were humble, and you, you're learning, and you're teachable. Okay. So I, I say we gotta give people that kind of, especially young leaders, right? We gotta give them a little grace and a little opportunity, and the first time they mess something up, we can't blow their head off, we gotta come alongside and say, you know, that wasn't such a good idea. Okay, I say that because I'm an idiot who has found all the landmines by driving over them in the course of my ministry, okay? <laughs> I got a big mouth and I say stupid stuff and I get angry and I blow up and I've had to repent and I'm learning as I go and I appreciate those who have given me grace. So let's, let, let's say he just made a mistake. I don't know. But you gotta say that and he hasn't. You gotta say, you know, the Dalai Lama's not his holiness. That's what they call the Pope too, by the way. There's one dude that we should say his holiness about. Who's that? Jesus. The Dalai Lama shouldn't be called his holiness. He should be introduced to his holiness. His holiness, that's Jesus. There's only one man who's never sinned and is truly holy. That's Jesus. And he gives us holiness or righteousness as a gift. Not by our own efforts. It's gift righteousness, not works righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
at the cross. Martin Luther says that the great exchange occurred. My sin went to Jesus. His righteousness came to me. It was a great exchange. The only people who are righteous, holy, are those clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no holiness apart from Jesus. There may be some decent citizens who do some nice things because they're made in the image and likeness of God and functioning by the conscience that God gave them and God's common grace has compelled them to do charitable things to which I would say it's not salvific, but if it helps some people, maybe that's kind of nice. But when you're sitting on a stage and the nations are watching and you're the one Christian and you're there to represent Jesus and you don't go anywhere near the gospel, and you refer to the Dalai Lama as his holiness. That's concerning. That's concerning. The Dalai Lama needs Jesus. He's a sinner separated from Jesus. And apart from repentance, he will spend eternity in the conscious torments of hell. He doesn't need to be bowed down to and adored. He doesn't need to be hated, despised, or attacked. He doesn't need to be belittled on the stage in front of the nations. But he needs to humbly hear that the hope, the salvation for the world that he aspires for, that there would be peace and unity and love and compassion, is only possible from the Prince of Shalom. His name is Jesus. I'll close with this. I don't want to just spend all my time criticizing some people. I want to give you some words of final encouragement. Let me tell you where I think this started to go sideways. First, I would encourage you to love the whole church. Every one of us loves our version, brand, or tribe of the church and tends to criticize the others. He is the vine and our churches and our networks and our denominations and our traditions are the branches. Love the seeker church. Love the traditional church. Love the church plants. Love the house church. Love the whole church. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Give yourself for the well-being of the whole church. Does this mean you agree with everyone? Well, of course not. Does this mean you're happy at everything? Of course not. But it does mean that your hope and your heart is for the good and the well-being of the whole church. And if you become embittered or angry against a part of the church, you will end up reacting against it, defining yourself by what you're against. We're not this, we're not this, we're not this, we're not this. And pretty soon, the gospel, the person and work of Jesus is not the compelling defining variable in your ministry. But who or what you're against, annoyed by or agitated by, and that's not good. Number two, true humility is required. False humility is we don't know anything. True humility is we know by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Much of the reaction that has led to the emerging, emergent debate and the emergent church is a reaction to hard, mean, cruel fundamentalism that lacks humility. Humility is important. More just sort of angry hammering on emergent types only reinforces their concerns, their fears, and their criticisms. 
It doesn't mean there shouldn't be correction. There should be. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in false teachers and false doctrines. The Bible's clear there are many. But the tone and how we present what it is we say is very important. I have really failed at this many times. And by God's grace, I hope I'm doing better. I don't think I've nailed it. And even today, some of the things I've said, I think, man, that, would, that could have been said in a more gracious way. Number three, turn your critics into coaches. When people criticize you, don't automatically defend yourself, get angry and self-righteous. See what truth there is in their criticism. Maybe emergent types will criticize you and your ministry. But you know what? Consider. See if there's anything true in it, and if so, demonstrate biblical humility and hear it. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't agree with everything you hear. You need humility and discernment. Humility is a listen. Discernment is only believe what's congruent with the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, my final point, practice repentance. Okay. You say, how do guys end up, go from you know, evangelical institutions and denominations and loving Jesus and the Bible to... We're not sure. We don't know what the Bible means. I don't think anybody's going to hell. The Dalai Lama's his holiness. Homosexuality seems to be okay. I don't think we're really sinners. The cross is divine child abuse. How do you get there? Well, you stop loving the whole church. You stop being humble. You stop listening to those who criticize you and you become defensive. You define yourself by what you're against and you don't keep repenting of sin and folly and pride and arrogance. And pretty soon, pretty soon, the only people that are around you are people who agree with you and reinforce what you already believe. And you're all blind to your blind spots. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for a chance to teach. God, these are hard things for me to teach because it's people that I really do love and churches that I'm concerned about. God, I pray that as Jeremiah wept over his day and Jesus wept over his day, that we would weep over our day. God, we do believe in false teachers and false teaching. We don't want to make light of that. We also know, Lord God, that it's not just the truth, but it's love and concern and empathy that earns a hearing so that the truth might be communicated. Lord Jesus, I am devastated to consider the fact that a generation of evangelicals would call anyone but you His Holiness. Jesus, that devastates me. Jesus, you are His Holiness. Jesus, you are His Holiness. And by grace, you're our Holiness. And so Jesus, ultimately, it is about you. It's about the Gospel. It's about your glory. I pray we would not make it about us defending ourselves or our methods or our styles. And I pray for my self-God repentance as I'm an arrogant, proud sinner who has said and done things even on this very issue that are not helpful. And God, I pray as well for my friends who are trapped in this kind of thinking that they would repent, that they would stop defining themselves by what they're against and what they're for instead, that they would not look to guys like Ken Wilber but Solomon of the book of Ecclesiastes to look at our day and get some perspective. God, you oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. We repent of our pride and we ask for humility that is empowered and enabled by grace through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.